and a big welcome to the Pass Radiothon Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. A great day last week and in a moment I'll read out the names of those who so far have donated to Tuesday Home Time. The list of course is not complete with some donations yet to be entered and they will be announced next week. It's not too late. If you haven't got round to it yet, there's still plenty of time, either by phoning 94198377 or through the webpage 3cr.org.au slash donate and they'll be acknowledged next week. So, here I go. Dave Hess, Sasha Gillies-Lakakis, Masha Mashney, Alison Thorne, Debbie Brennan, Stuart Rees, Susanna Hagadi, Kamal Fidel, Wayne Wright, Bernadette Evans, Barbara Hall, Cam Walker, David Lane, Bronwyn Jones, Heather Smith, Joy Phillips, Ian McIntyre, Bruce Francis, Lou Schetzer, Juliet Fox, Glenn Davis, Jean Eli, Bob Phelps, John Kent, Nick McClellan, Lee Heather, Emily Hayes, Jackie Brown, in memory of Pauline Mitchell, Romina Bitson, Nancy Atkin, Ron Guy, Susan Sharp, Leah Riley, Ray Bennett and Grace Kim. And a great, great thank you to all those wonderful people. And as I said, it's not too late. You can donate any time by ringing or office hours on 94198377 or if you'd rather through 3cr.org.au and thank you, thank you once again to all those wonderful people. But back to business. Today we have Lionel Bopaji discussing the recent past and present situation in Sri Lanka. Jake Lynch, Associate Professor at Sydney University amongst other things, why anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitic. Gene Ethics Monthly Report with Bob Phelps. Retired solicitor Max Watts with a blatant non-conforming with the law and the sabotage of a law. Kevin Healy is having a holiday after his strenuous radiothon week. But do stay tuned until 6pm for Dunbar Law. And thank you, thank you once again. Now living in Melbourne, Lionel Bopuji is the President of the Australian Advocacy for Good Governance in Sri Lanka. In addition, Lionel is described as a composer, an engineer, a manager, a politician, an activist, singer, social activist, and the list goes on. In the 1970s and 80s, he was jailed and tortured twice for his role as a former leader of a mass liberation movement in Sri Lanka called the People's Liberation Front, eventually freed into political exile, making Australia his family's home. I spoke with Lionel yesterday and began by asking him about the organisation of which he is president, the Australian Advocacy for Good Government in Sri Lanka. It is basically, we established this group in 2014 when uh, Till the Rajapaksa regime was in power, they had an authoritarian rule and 
increasingly becoming more and more dictatorial. And there was no rule of law in the country and there were disappearances, there were killings and shootings and all sorts of things happening. Different uh, individuals who were interested in doing something about uh, what was happening at that time in Sri Lanka to get rid of the Rajapaksa regime and establish at least a less authoritarian or I would say more democratic in a way to bring to power. So all those who interested got into uh, this group called Australian Advocacy for Good Governance in Sri Lanka. It is a pluralist organization. I mean, it it has uh, all uh, Sri Lankan communities of Sri Lankan background uh, there, you know, sort of Muslims, Tamils, Sinhalese, Burgers, and, you know, all of them are there represented. And then uh, also of all political persuasions from the uh, right-wing United National Party to the JBP, Frontline Socialist Party, and Australian Tamil Congress. And it was a very broad uh, sort of representative organization. But uh, what happens is usually with all these organizations, when something happens in Sri Lanka, it becomes more live and active, and then the enthusiasm dies down after a while, and then, you know, sort of again it comes back. It is fluctuating sort of dynamism, I would say. We have several groups um, in Australia as well as internationally. Australian Advocacy for Good Governance in Sri Lanka is one of the groups who are more into uh, political activities. But then they work on, uh, I mean, the group works on uh, consensus, what sort of things we can, we can do with minimal problems, you know, because there are different views. Say, for example, with regard to the national question, everybody holds their own views and they have different perspective and so on. So we try to at least develop some sort of a consensus about devolution of power. Say everybody has to be treated as uh, equal uh, citizens of Sri Lanka, treated with dignity, with respect, and so on. You know, so those sort of fundamentals. And then uh, with regard to economic development, it is very difficult to reach any consensus because, you know, sort of there, there are some individuals who would say they want to continue these economic policies like, I mean, what we brand as neoliberal politics. And then we oppose uh, neoliberal politics. We are more advocating, you know, sort of collective sort of non-profit maximizing endeavors along, along uh, the economic development. And so there are different things and uh, on different aspects, we try to build a consensus when there is a problem, especially in Sri Lanka. For example, during this uh, COVID crisis, when the new Rajapaksa regime imposed that dead bodies of Muslims should be cremated rather than buried, according to their Islamic practices, um, then all of us got together and made representations to the Australian government as well as to the Sri Lankan government. We also contributed in a small way because uh, the pressure came from worldwide different organizations and ultimately the government caved in and uh, although it was in a limited way, they uh, accommodated uh, the request, but still they allowed bodies of uh, Muslim uh, faith uh, who have passed away due to COVID to be buried in a place called Ottamawadi. So those sort of things. We come together on common issues and develop a minimum consensus 
on those issues and try to develop. And at the moment, we have built uh, what we call another group uh, here to Sri Lanka People's Solidarity. And uh, that group is also a bit like that, but some of the political groups seems to be avoiding participation in the group due to different competing political interests, I would say. And uh, we are also trying to uh, develop some way of addressing the current crisis in Sri Lanka. I'd imagine you've contacted the Australian government and now maybe the new Australian government about their policy of turning the boats back? Yes. I mean, we have just, uh, you know, sort of uh, noted to the Australian government that in Sri Lanka, because of the current situation, you know, there will be people trying to flee because they are looking for better economic circumstances as well as a way to, to evade uh, all the difficulties they encounter in terms of uh, scarcity of uh, essential items, difficult living conditions and so on. The Australian government should try to persuade Sri Lankan government to listen to the people in Sri Lanka and uh, accommodate their demands, and that way they could avoid, if at all, they want to avoid the people fleeing Sri Lanka, rather than turning back the people when they arrive in boats, you know, because the people are helpless, and uh, they should be given uh, proper treatment as asylum seekers, because it's a legal right. Once they arrive here, they should not be taken uh, offshore or somewhere else to process. They should be processed here and it has to be done expeditiously and then uh, you know if they are found to be genuine refugees genuine asylum seekers they should be uh, given their rights as uh, refugees so that is the position we we advocate looking at the the new prime minister following the resignation of mahinda rajapaksa who is he and what's his background his name is um, uh, Mr. Ranil Vikramasinghe. He has been, the, now including this term, he has been Prime Minister five times in Sri Lanka. Uh, now his role, he has been, I think he was appointed as uh, Minister for Education during uh, President J.R. Jayawardena's time. J.R. Jayawardena was the first executive president and who introduced neoliberalism into Sri Lanka in 1977. And uh, under his government, uh, when uh, Ranil Kamasinga was appointed as the Minister for Education, he tried to privatize some of the educational institutions and establish a private medical college. And there were huge protests in Sri Lanka and um, many medical students were killed. Under that government, although I wouldn't say uh, Ranil Kamasinga was directly responsible, under that, uh, under Jayajawadana's government, the JVP was proscribed in 1983 and uh, July 1983 uh, program against uh, Tamil people in the south was initiated under that government that created the uh, massive protest movement in Sri Lanka that led to, on the one hand, in the south, uh, that led to the 1988-89 massacre where about 60,000 uh, young people were eliminated. Then, uh, on the other hand, in the north and east, that led to the uh, the militant movement, uh, which led to the militant conf- military confrontation between the LTTE and the government. And ultimately, uh, I think during those 30 years, 
from my memory, about 200,000 uh, young people were killed or uh, got rid of. Uh, that situation, they, they are all responsible. Ranil something I would say, is one person who was responsible. And uh, there were allegations that he was in charge of one of the torture chambers that was uh, established during that time in Batalanda. Batalanda in Kalania, that is close to Colombo. And uh, there were many people who disappeared during the, in, in that camp. After the 88-89 period, he was appointed the prime minister uh, in a coalition government, rather, you know, sort of under Chandrika's presidency. Chandrika was elected president. The rule of uh, Jaya Javadan, which uh, came to power in 1977, it uh, went on and uh, uh, R. Premadas became the prime uh, president, executive president. And then after elections held in, uh, I think, 1994, Chandrika Bandarnayaka came to power. And uh, in one of the governments, Ranil Vikramasinghe was the prime minister. Because in the parliamentary elections, uh, Ranil Vikramasinghe's United National Party got a majority. And uh, in the presidential elections, Chandrika Bantarnaka. So they were from two different parties, but they continued uh, to rule. But ultimately what happened is uh, in year 2000, as far as I can recollect, there was a devolution package that was uh, presented or rather developed at that time, which allowed... Uh, non-majority in communities to have dual powers. That was one of the best uh, devolution packages that Sri Lanka came across. But at the time, uh, the current uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, GLP, was the uh, Minister for Constitutional Development, and uh, he was also supporting. And But uh, there were two problems. One was that there was uh, some sort of uh, competing interest between the Prime Minister of that uh, regime and the, pres the President. The President wanted to extend her term, uh, to which uh, Prime Minister didn't agree and then uh, the government was dissolved uh, but before that the 2000 package was defeated because Chandrika Bandarnayaka didn't have power within her party she was uh, um, brought uh, to head the political party because Chandrika Bandarnayaka was popular and they won the elections but uh, Prime Minister Ranil Vikramasinghe he burnt a copy of that devolution package in the parliament. The, the problem is, okay, during my thing, I should be brief. Uh, during the four intervals during which Prime Minister Rani Likramasinghe was uh, in power, nothing much could be achieved. When uh, the current president, Gotabe Rajabaksa, appointed uh, Mr. Rani Likramasinghe as Prime Minister, he lost his seat in the elections, the general elections held last. He was appointed to the parliament to a national list, not, not directly elected by the people. And he got the least number of preference votes, probably in 2010 or whatever, I can't remember. He got the maximum preference number. During this time, I don't know what he can do as the fifth prime minister of Sri Lanka. I don't think uh, he will be very effective. He hasn't been a very effective prime minister. Well, I can imagine that more neoliberalism is just the thing that Sri Lanka doesn't need. That's right, yes, yes. <laughs> but neoliberalism, it directly contributed to the current crisis, although we say the current crisis is the result of the, the policies the post-independent regimes in Sri Lanka adopted right through 
it has worsened the crisis. But the crisis became much worse after the introduction of neoliberalism in 1977. 1978 constitution was specially established, specially developed to deal with any circumstances that could arise due to the new economic regime the government wanted to introduce. Now, what happened is, before that, it was the coalition government led by the LSSP and the Communist Party in Sri Lanka who was in power. They had a closed economy completely closed, but they had some positive things in the, in the sense that they established some manufacturing base in Sri Lanka, because until then, uh, the Western powers or uh, the, people, the governments in Sri Lanka didn't consider manufacturing as, uh, as a means of economic development. The, the, the main focus was on agricultural development. Even that was limited to several selected uh, commodities like tea, rubber, and coconut. During that period, uh, the manufacturing was mainly, uh, they established uh, several factories, steel factory, uh, then uh, hardware factories, uh, textiles corporations, and so on. So, so what happened is as a result of this, the neoliberal policies that was introduced, as soon as they they, they uh, dismantled all these uh, new manufacturing facilities and they sold it to their own henchmen. So there is no manufacturing base in Sri Lanka at the moment, except for uh, what is in what what is established in free trade zones, and they are established by foreign multinationals or big companies, and uh, they take most of their whatever uh, their whether they generate uh, overseas. The working people uh, employed in most of these uh, enterprises in the free trade zones are exploited to the maximum possible. They don't have the right to strike. Their, their rights are curtailed as, um, I mean, in the world everywhere else where these sort of enterprises have been established, uh, the working people don't have any right. That is the situation. And so the neoliberal reform twenty-seven onwards, it has intensified uh, the problems of the people. On the one hand, I, I can say there was one positive aspect in a way because Sri Lanka is a capitalist society with huge vestiges of feudalism. Because, uh, you know, sort of most of the women were uh, doing their, you know, home, whatever they had, they had to do in, in domestically. They were not uh, allowed to, you know, do any jobs and so on. But the, those sort of relationships broke down with the introduction of neoliberalism. What uh, happened is most of the women uh, who were based in rural areas, they migrated to the free trade zones and they were employed as you know, female workers, in, mostly in garment industries. They are exploited, of course. You know, they, they are subject to a violation of human rights. But still, now they are under capitalist relations of production. So from feudalist relations of production, they, they, they moved some sectors of society to the arena of capitalist relations of production, which I see as something that has to happen, but uh, not in this way, you know, sort of by exploiting people more, by allowing multinational corporations to violate their human rights and so on. And since then, the government has taken uh, loans because what has happened is whatever we produce in Sri Lanka, wealth we generate, is um, uh, used as foreign exchange to 
import items that is required not only by the people, mostly by the ruling elite. The balance of trade is unfavorable to Sri Lanka, as it has always right through. Uh, there had been a, a balance of trade unfavorable to Sri Lanka. So this has been worsening. What uh, the government has done is they have been taking loans and assistance packages from different sort of organizations, including the IMF, World Bank, uh, say from countries like Japan, China, India, Australia, the United States, Britain, and so on. Many, many countries have given loans and assistance programs. Now, Sri Lanka has obtained 16 IMF assistance packages previously. Can you imagine? The problem is, what have we gained from these 16 IMF assistance packages? There have been many other loans we have been taken on. Recently, we have been making currency shops because we can't, we don't have foreign exchange to pay for loans to service our debt, total debt, not only uh, foreign, but also domestic. Uh, those loans have increased. So we are going to continue and we have, we are asking for the 17th package from the International Monetary Fund. We cannot expect anything. The, the, I, I have to clear up uh, one of the, one of the misunderstandings we have. China is blamed for most of these things. I'm not <laughs> trying to safeguard what Chinese are doing in Sri Lanka. They have, they are doing very bad things uh, as they do in many parts of the world. But China is uh, amount of loans uh, or uh, debt owned uh, for China is only about 10% of the total uh, debt uh, Sri Lanka owes uh, to other other countries and institutions. So debt to China plays only a small role. The mostly it is the debt have come from international bonds borrowings, and they 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 are maturing uh, very soon and. Solely blaming China, mostly on the part of the West, is a misinterpretation of the situation. Well, are the other countries going to continue lending money to Sri Lanka? Still, there are the, one of the one of the major factors affecting that uh, that situation is the balance of forces uh, in the Indian Ocean, because China and India they are acting like superpowers in that region. So India is supported by, uh, uh, you know, he's part of Quad and um, AUKUS and, you know, sort of it's uh, uh, America and other countries, including Australia, they are backing India. So India is trying to limit the influence China has on Sri Lanka. With that aim, they are providing assistance to Sri Lanka. And on the other hand, China, China wants to counter the uh, Western interest in holding Sri Lanka to ransom. So, you know, what do you call, uh, they, they are bargaining, uh, the, the, the ruling regimes. Right? They have been bargaining since 1970s. Uh, I would cite the example of uh, 1971 uprising where I was, <laughs> I played a major part. During that uprising, almost all countries in the world provided assistance to the government to repress uprising. And the major part was played by China, India, and the Soviet Union, and uh, Americans, Singapore, all countries. And what they did, what the Sri Lanka government did, is they they defined the JVP or the 
um, the, the party that launched the uprising. As uh, to, to the Americans, they said these are KGB agents. To the Russians, they said these are CIA agents. To the Chinese, they said these are KGB agents. So all the people helped the government. And so they are, they are playing uh, with different parties, you know, sort of according to the requirements. Now what has happened is now they are catering to India. Now India has actually uh, taken over some of the oil tanks in Trincomalee. So they are given to them. And the Chinese have taken over some other resources in Sri Lanka. So the Sri Lankan government is using the rivalry between China and India to provide more assistance. So it is a very controversial sort of situation, and which is harmful for the uh, for the people, I would say. Well, it's just going to go from crisis to crisis, isn't it? If this debt continues to multiply. Yes. Yes. Actually, I think I think it will be good to cite uh, some some of the. Uh, we'll take the case of uh, Pakistan, for example. Now, uh, that is the closest example we can take for the damage the neoliberal solutions have uh, done to the economy of a country. Now, as far as I can recollect, in year 2019, the International Monetary Fund provided Pakistan with. The six billion dollars that was their assistance package, and uh, what happened is the Imran Khan's previous regime in Pakistan uh, did not address the structural issues that was causing the crisis. Like in Sri Lanka, there are structural issues which need to be addressed, but they don't want to address those structural issues. So, what happened is in Pakistan, the expected uh, long-term positive economic outcomes uh, did not materialize. They couldn't realize those outcomes. And uh, so now there is a new regime in Pakistan, and now they are renegotiating. Not renegotiating, actually negotiating another assistance package. Now this package will be worth about $8 billion. The previous one was $6 billion. This one is $8 billion. So uh, what can you expect? You know, by just IMF assistance packages, that will be helpful in the short term if the the regimes address the structural issues that gives rise to um, uh, that give rise to all these problems but they don't do that say for example in sri lanka one of the major issues is they maintain a huge armed force and i think out of the government salary structure salary salary bill about 50% is spent on uh, maintaining the armed forces. That is not including the police force. So, I mean, at this moment, why do we need uh, such a massive uh, security force? Uh, because there is no war. Now, at the moment, I, I must mention, at this moment, the government has uh, is trying to use their security forces to to crush the protest movement in Goldface Green. I was just reading the news items just before I started the interview, and uh, they are arresting people in Goldface Green uh, who are protesting against the policies of the government. So, on the one hand, government spends, you know, that sort of money, that sort of resources on uh, maintaining the security forces. On the other hand, there have been uh, people employed in the state sector who are just uh, political appointments. 
they don't do any productive work at every election um, most of the political parties have pledged we will provide employment you know, when they come to power but what happens is they appoint their own henchmen political appointments to different uh, parts uh, different uh, state sector agencies and uh, they are not in productive employment they don't do any 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 service to the people so they have to be i mean i'm not saying that they should be sacked but they should be productively employed they should be given other opportunities these sort of things yeah just finally one of the rajapaks is gone there's plenty more left does it matter if they're still there uh <laughs> that's a very controversial yeah that that is that is the issue i think that that is being debated at the moment because most of the protesters don't want any rajapaksas you know sort of the the major demand is for the president to go that's gota by rajapaksa and um, actually when ranil vikramasinghe was appointed he said he will be resigning uh, you know uh, he was trying to give a time frame like you know sort of when the 21st amendment to the constitution is brought and um, he will resign you know after some time and so on but now he has changed the tune because he thinks that the protest movement has weakened so he is saying i'm not going i'm still i'm staying for the next two and a half years and ranil vikramasinghe has backed down on that you know ranil vikramasinghe also said that the president will resign uh, after some time but now nobody talks about the resignation but still the protest movement is demanding its resignation unless the president says you know giving a definite time period so he will resign at a certain point of time but he is not saying that and there are mahindra rajapaksa who has resigned he is taking part in all the cabinet meetings as you know sort of um, uh, advising ranil vikramasinghe ranil vikramasinghe is the is a nominal prime minister i think mahindra rajapaksa is acting as the advisor to the prime minister probably but so rajapaksa has not born in that sense all rajapaksas are still in power so there is a huge issue uh, remaining with the people of sri lanka you know sort of i don't know how that could be sorted out in the sense that most of the people in the the groups and parties and individuals in the opposition they don't try to build a common platform through which most of these protest movements could be mobilized together they are fighting with each other they are competing with each other for their own influence and that would weaken the protest movement and that would give uh, opportunities for the ruling elite to continue their uh, regime and um, with the imf package i think they will get the imf package at some time and it will create very difficult situation for people because uh, it will be very painful to implement all the requirements that this imf assistance package will ask people to uh, to undergo and i've been speaking with Lionel Bobaji who's the president of the Australian Advocacy for Good Governments in Sri Lanka good day my name is Margie Thorpe you are listening to 3CR community radio 855 on your dial.
3CR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. The revolution in Rojava is a beacon of hope for the world, putting direct democracy and feminism into practice on a broad scale. This radical attempt at social transformation now faces huge challenges, including daily attacks by the Turkish military with little outside recognition or aid. Show your support for Rojava by joining North East Syria Solidarity, or NESS, and help ensure the survival of this inspiring experiment in social change. NESS sends aid, raises awareness, and builds solidarity. Get involved at www.nessolidarity.org.au. NESS is a 3CR supporter. Wondering how you pay your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 0394198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS or simply post your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2022. 3CR. Keep community strong. Today we're looking at blatant non-enforcement of the law and sabotage of a law. And to explain when and why, I spoke with Max Costello, LLM, and that stands for Master of Laws. Now retired, was a prosecuting solicitor with WorkSafe Victoria and a law lecturer with Melbourne RMIT University. He is the author of several articles on health and safety concerns in migration detention and has co-written related submissions, one with Robert Richter QC, to Senate committees. One is sabotage and one is blatant non-enforcement. I'll deal with non-enforcement and they both relate to asylum seekers and refugees. I'll deal with the non-enforcement one first because I've spoken previously about that and I don't want to just repeat the same stuff, so I'll ultra-summarise it. But basically the non-enforcement is about the regulator, the supposed law enforcer for the Commonwealth Health and Safety Law, almost totally failing to enforce that law in relation to people in immigration detention. It's the one I'll start with. On the 14th, about four or five days ago, I had a piece, an article, a lengthy article published in John Menadieu's blog, uh, Pearls and Irritations. The title of my article was 
it was about really integrity commissions and what they can and can't do because Labor is going to introduce a federal integrity commission. The heading says, being largely reactive, integrity commissions can't prevent all corruption, but new laws could help. And then I go on to say, a federal integrity commission alone can't prevent, for example, the administrative sabotaging or the selective non-enforcement of a protective Commonwealth law. And that's why targeted prevention legislation is needed. Now, as to the non-enforcement, for older listeners in particular will recall the uh, BBC television comedy series on politics called Yes Minister, in which a, uh, a minister, Jim Hacker, and his uh, senior public servant, his departmental secretary, Sir Humphrey Appleby, uh, had these uh, conversations which are humorous, but... Uh, probably a bit close to the bone in some cases. And I, I say that people who remember that program could well imagine a minister in the Morrison government having one of those yes minister type conversations. And I have it this way, Minister X, I'll call him Jim Hacker. Uh, Appleby, about that law which the parliament passed while we temporarily lost our one seat majority, do we really have to comply with it? And Appleby's with his uh, typical forked tongue, says, well, Minister, yes and no. Yes, it's a law of the Australian Parliament. Uh, but no, uh, we, that is your department, are entrusted with its implementation. So we will decide, with your guidance, of course, how it will be put into effect. Or, if you catch my drift, Minister, whether or not it will be effective at all. And then I say, well, maybe... Uh, that hypothetical dialogue was a bit actual. And then I refer back to the situation when Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull re resigned in 2018. Dr. Karen Philps, former head of the Medical uh, Australian Medical Association, won the ensuing by-election, depriving the then Morrison government of its uh, one-seat majority. And then led by Phelps, the non-government uh, legislators passed the Medivac Amendments to the Migration Act. Now, they empowered two treating doctors, doctors treating people held offshore, to mainly decide which of the asylum seekers or refugees who had been held in a regional processing centre in PNG or Nauru needed transferring to Australia. And the wording in the uh, amendments was, quote, for medical or psychiatric assessment or treatment, unquote. And then I asked the question, well, how would the government's hard man, Home Affair, then Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton, react? I'm hypothesising, I'm speculating, I'm making no actual allegations or assertions, but I'm just wondering whether Mr Dutton, angry at having to obey the law, <laughs> and I've got an exclamation mark in brackets there, uh, that is, uh, obeying it by approving most of the uh, recommended transports, maybe he realised that the amendment's aim, which is securing high-quality onshore care for offshore exiles, could be sabotaged by having his department take certain measures. And what I'm envisaging is if all the transferees were on arrival immediately placed in immigration detention, they could be denied that care. That sort of sets the the scene, um, and I'll, I'll pause here, Jan, to um, introduce some um, 
medical evidence, if I may. What happened was that there were three uh, doctors involved in those uh, that whole transfer process, and they put in a submission number 52 uh, to the Senate committee, which back in mid uh, 2019 was was examining the, the the then proposal. It later happened proposal by the Morrison government to repeal the Medivac amendments. One of them, Dr. She has a long name. Her first name, she's known as Dr. Nyla for short, and she appears on the drum from time to time. Her family name is Jana Kiramanan. She's a a surgeon. Within their submission, the three doctors, um, submission number 52, she gave details of a very, very thorough audit she had carried out on the people seeking to be transferred. She found that of those, you know, a very large sample of those people in applying for Medivac transfers, 97% had physical ailments, an average of 4.6 each. 91% had a psychiatric illness and 88% had both. And she used, uh, as the sort of control mechanism, she used the very standard quality assurance protocol used in all Australian hospitals. It wasn't a frolic of her own, it was done by the book. And that's how sick they were. And yet, on the 26th of August, at the uh, Legal and Constitutional Affairs Legislation Committee, uh, senators were asking Home Affairs Secretary Pizzullo, well, what's happening with these medical transfers? How's this Medivac Amendment law working in practice? And by then, 111 had already been transferred. And Secretary Pizzullo's words were very interesting. He said um, the chief medical officer is presented with an assessment by two treating doctors, okay, and then he says, he calls them two treating doctors so-called, as if they're in some doubt. And in fact, one of the politicians, in a bit of background, had referred to them all, you know, two treating doctors from Nimbin can set this up, you know, as if it's uh, the doctors are a suspect. But it continuing, two treating doctors have this assessment in each of the 111 transferees to date the assessment in all cases was quote inpatient care required but Pizzullo continues our chief medical officer has to look at the papers as presented and then he says four persons have been hospitalized when we last look not one was in hospital in fact 70 of them are not even outpatients and then he goes on to say whether they're being detained, most of them in hotels or so-called alternative places of detention, a few of them in traditional detention centres. And he, he says where their health is, quote, managed by the Commonwealth's health contractor, International Health and Medical Services Proprietary Limited, IHMS. And then I go on to explain, well, he says the health was being managed by IHMS doctors, but really, it was managed or controlled by the Australian Border Force Unit within Home Affairs. The doctors, an IHMS doctor might recommend to Border Force that the detainee, you know, Medivac transferee X really urgently needed inpatient care in a hospital or a specialist clinic, but they could only recommend it was Australian Border Force that decided. And as we know, Jan, that that prevented nearly all of them from getting the specialist care they were brought here for. That's my brief summary of, of that aspect of the 
sabotage of a law. I'll now quickly jump to, well, what can be done about it? There is already a law called the Law Enforcement Commissioner Act of 2006. There is, you know, a law that's supposed to, the Law Enforcement Integrity Commissioner Act 2006, but I've had a look at it. It only applies to organisations that are named as a, quote, law enforcement agency, unquote, within the Act. Comcare is not named as a law enforcement agency and neither are those banking and finance regulators. So unless they're named, you know, the, the integrity commissioners doesn't have coverage over them. But then even if those banking and finance regulators and Comcare were named, it's still no good because the act, the, the way it's worded, the, the integrity commissioner can only deal with individual corruption if a law, an individual law enforcement officer within one of those named agencies engages in corrupt activity, then the commissioner can deal with that individual. But at the moment, it's got no power to deal with non-enforcement by the agency itself, like Comcare not enforcing health and safety and those banking and finance regulators not enforcing the, their laws. So like, two urgent amendments are needed to that particular Law Enforcement uh, Integrity Act. That finishes my uh, brief uh, summary on the non-enforcement issue. So now I'll turn to deal with the, uh, with the sabotage. The law that I say in, in my Pearls and Irritations article was sabotage were the Medivac amendments to the Migration Act. Going back to what actually happened as opposed to by speculation, after Turnbull suddenly resigned when he was deposed by Morrison, uh, there was a by-election in the seat of Wentworth and Dr. Karen Phelps, former AMA president, won it. And then she and all the other non-government uh, members of both houses pushed through the Medivac Amendment. And as I've said, those people scheduled to be Medivac were very, very sick. But yet what happened in the... Um, Senate committee, as Pizzullo explained, I might be repeating myself a bit here, yes, treating doctors said inpatient care required, but the chief medical officer, it seems, but what Pizzullo said, overrode almost all, all but four of those 111 uh, treating doctor recommendations, so only four people went to hospital. The very next day, that was that committee, those committee proceedings were on the 26th of August, 2019, the very next day, now this is Peter Dutton on 2GB, he called in to Ray Hadley, he comments on this very, you know, only four people going to hospital, I'll just uh, play it for you now. Oh, there'd be a handful of people that come, well, at least 111 now, I don't know the exact number is of today, but it continues to grow, and none of them are in hospital, so the claims about urgent medical assistance and uh, this Medivac bill, they called it that so that people thought, you know, there was an urgent need to get people out. It, it, honestly, it is conned by Labor to try and appease the left of their party who have never supported tough border protection. That, Jan, is the man himself the very next day, almost word for word, what Pizzullo said. I've already quoted the medical assessment that there was a very, very high percentage of people who were very seriously ill. Dr. Jenna Kuramanan actually spoke at a, 
a, a, a Senate hearing on this matter. She explained her submission. This was on the 26th, the, the same day that Pizzullo later appeared and gave his explanation. And she said that um, part of the reason for the very high levels, 97%, 91%, 88%, is the conditions that they lived in offshore detention in the last six six years. There are certain diseases that are more common in disadvantaged populations. The second thing is there's been no resolution to many of these health issues. I think she means no effective treatment. So even, I'm quoting, so even though $400 million has been spent by the Department of Home Affairs, Immigration and Home Affairs, on providing healthcare services to patients in Papua New Guinea and Nauru, as far as we can tell, uh, the department itself has made no audit of the outcomes. Again, and I'm end of quote, she then refers to her own very, very thorough audit using the standard hospital assessment uh, criteria. She says, quote, if we funded an Australian health service, in other words, in Australia, that delivered these outcomes, these sort of outcomes, it would be shut down immediately. The numbers are absolutely gobsmacking. They're the medical facts, how sick these people were. And because, as I've said, because they're contained, they've been confined until recently in an immigration facility, usually a hotel. Uh, where Australian Border Force has, in the great majority of cases, prevented them from getting the the specialist care they were brought here for. That stands in contrast, uh, that medical, deliberate medical cruelty, if you like, stands in contrast what Dutton says, oh, look, it's a con. Uh, Only four of them were in hospital. Hint, hint, they're not really sick. So that just shows the extent of which the minister, former Minister Dutton, will go to create an impression that they're not really sick, whereas, in fact, the reason they didn't go to hospital is that they were prevented by the department from going to hospital. The question arises, as I've said at the start of my article, the the, Integrity Commission, these things have happened, the Integrity Commission might look into it, but what we also need to look into is how to prevent these things from happening. And uh, what I suggest uh, in this case of internal sabotage is that it be made a, a criminal offence, punishable only by imprisonment, a fine, any, you know, a minister or department could pay any fine, no trouble. But if you make it just jail only, that's appropriate. And, of course, it would be up to um, Attorney General Mark Dreyfus to um, oversee the drafting of laws but I won't go into detail, but I've made a couple of suggestions in my my article. Just to conclude, what um, I find quite remarkable is that there has been no media exposure, much less outrage and calling for something to be done, about the following two facts. One, the transferees denied their entitlement to specialist care were and remain extremely and comprehensively unwell, and two, such cruelty was inflicted via the sabotage of an Australian law by an Australian government department and left unprevented by the department's minister. So what I'm really calling and hoping for is that someone in the Australian media gets onto this as an issue. Those two assertions are pretty damn serious.
so I'm I'm trying to uh, I won't go into detail, but I'm trying to see if some public affairs program could actually um, look into this and and highlight it and bring it to public attention. There's my good news for the day. <laughs> Max, do you believe the new ALP government is up to the challenge? It's a very good question. I'll just mention one particular fact. Comcare is, as I've said, Margaret Sinclair. Since 2015, Margaret Sinclair, who's a refugee advocate with a diploma of work, health and safety, and I'm a former prosecutor in that area. Between the two, Margaret has written 70 times to Comcare, and I've written six times, with attaching evidence of apparent serious breaches of health and safety law in immigration, relating to detainees in immigration detention. Comcare's only reply has been every time uh, we found no evidence of any such breach. That also ups the ante, I think, um, and that's for the hopefully some media outlet to quote and make use of. The point I was going to make there is the at the moment the position of CEO of Comcare is unfilled. There was an advertisement placed earlier this year. I'm hoping that the uh, the new Labor government appoints someone who will, among other things, actually enforce the law uh, across all Commonwealth workplaces, not just immigration facilities, of course. But what we found, Mark, we looked up the um, annual reports of both Comcare and the department that used to be called Immigration, now called Home Affairs, and found that uh, that since the Health and Safety Act came into effect in, on the 1st of January 2012, uh, Comcare has only issued six improvement notices and instituted one prosecution, which is yet to be heard in the courts. The improvement notice for those who don't know health and safety law, it's a notice from the inspector saying, uh, you're breaching the Act, this is how you're breaching the Act, uh, you are ordered by my notice now to uh, comply with the Act and remedy that situation, or else those six improvement notices could have um, nipped further harm in the bud, but... Uh, in, uh, in 10 years, just under 10 years, six improvement notice, notices in that uh, situation of, of apparently blatant and serious uh, breaching uh, is pretty disgracefully low. I'm hopeful, Jen, but as with any incoming government, uh, one hopes for the best and keeps pushing and urging as the refugee support advocacy groups are already doing. We're writing to relevant ministers and congratulating them but urging them to, to do more in this space. Well, Max, we can remember the recent Royal Commission into Banking and Finance. What's come out of that and what hasn't come out of that? <laughs> Good question. Well, I fondly recall the, the great moments on television where you had, on the one hand, the, the senior banking official, you know, directors of, and high-level people in banks and finance organisations and, and similarly the very senior people in the, the law enforcement bodies, the um, ASIC, APRA and Austrac. Austrac covers um, using uh, money laundering. The commissioner would say, so you're facing um, a situation where if you went ahead with that, there would be very substantial uh, criminal offence or you know, offences against the, the relevant laws. So um, what did you decide to do? And their answers were sort of, well, well, we considered various options. I mean, the um, 
and, and the bank, the regulators say, well, we would probably have a chat with the senior people in, in that bank and, and try and get them to uh, lift their game. <laughs> the commissioner said uh, to both parties, have we ever, to the banking officials, have we ever thought of just obeying the law? And to the regulators, have we ever thought about just enforcing the law? <laughs> Great moments in television. Well, the regulators were shamed and embarrassed into it, and they did launch some mega cases. But then on the, 20, on the 1st of July last year, guess what? The Morrison government comes out with um, a new guide for regulators, and the opening sentence in the, um, in the preamble says, quote, as part of our deregulate, the government's deregulation agenda, let that sink in. As part of the deregulation agenda, we're turning the spotlight on regulators, unquote. And now they do admit that regulation is important and, you know, can protect people and, uh, and in, when people are facing serious harm, it should be forced. So they do concede that in the guide. But basically, as, as the opening sentence indicates, to, to effectively deregulate and, and how they do it is this, that every minister who has a regulator in his or her portfolio must send to them a, quote, statement of expectations. And in, in response, the regulator must uh, d devise and return a statement of intent which complies with the minister's expectations. I quote in my article from ASIC's website, and, and in, in short, it says, Yes, we've taken note of the Minister's expectations, we've devised our statement of intent and accordingly we will minimise the impact of the regulation, the law on the regulated community to reduce the regulatory burden. So, so that's the result. They only, the regulators only got serious for a year or so and then the Morrison government's official instructions to regulators undercut that and... Uh, now that applies, just to finish, that applies to all Commonwealth regulators. That would include, include of course, Comcare, would include the Australian Federal Police. On the other thing that's in there is that you must regulate in a way that doesn't conflict with government policy. What if the Australian Federal Police are investigating the conduct of a minister or a department where the way they were carrying out policy involved... Um, potential criminal offences. They, are they supposed not to pursue that because government policy trumps the law? I mean, it's very serious stuff, Jim. So coming back to your point, there's a fair bit for the Labor to deal with. It sounds to me like neoliberalism gone mad. I agree with you entirely. As some commentators have said, uh, more so perhaps in America than here, we, we're drifting almost from... Uh, neoliberalism to neo-fascism. Oh, that's just a comment. I, I, I say no more. I don't think you'd be the only one with that point of view. <laughs> well, I hope I've uh, enlightened and not bamboozled your listeners, Jen, but I think these are pretty, pretty damn serious issues. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Max. And keep in there. My pleasure. Thank you. Will do. And Max, of course, is Max Costello, retired solicitor and law lecturer, now working very, very hard for refugees.
and asylum seekers. Oh, typical of a man in the Western system. Like, hello, you know, all stories might, may be important, but at the end of the day, Invasion Day, you can't compare that to the First Fleet because Invasion Day was the start of the dispossession, murder, massacres and the total annihilation of some people on a continent that had existed since time immemorial. So Scott Morrison, if he really wants to lead this country, he needs to shut his mouth in regards to those comments and really understand that Australia Day cannot be celebrated. It is a day of mourning for our people and they would not celebrate the Holocaust. You know, so I don't understand how that is any different than what our people went through because the genocide continues today. Like, Scott Morrison really needs to take a step back and listen to the voices on the ground because he's really ignorant in my view. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. Radiothon 2022. Keep communities strong. We need your financial support to be independent, community controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station strong and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2022. 3CR, keep community strong. Online and in cinema. Melbourne Documentary Film Festival will be running online from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 31st of July. Canvassing the world's best docos from South by Southwest, Tribeca and Hot Docs, as well as the best Australian content. Check out the lineup and book today at mdff.org.au or cinemanova.com.au. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Associate Professor Jake Lynch is Chair of the Department of Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Sydney. Jake has spent the past 20 years researching, developing, teaching and training in peace journalism. For this work, he was recognised with the award of the 2017 Luxembourg Peace Prize by the Sren Peace Foundation. Since 1999 up to the present day, Jack has devised and led training workshops in peace journalism for professional editors and reporters and in media skills for peace workers in many countries, including Afghanistan, Fiji, Nepal, India and the Philippines. Before taking up his academic post, 
Jake enjoy a 20-year career in journalism. He was a political correspondent for Sky News at Westminster and the Sydney correspondent for the independent newspaper, culminating in a role as an on-air producer, anchor for BBC World Television News. Jake, before we talk about a number of issues looking at anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism and the efforts by Zionists to shut down criticism and speak the truth about what is really happening to the people of Palestine. An interesting career change 20 years ago from journalism in the UK to academia, focusing on peace studies and peace journalism at Sydney Uni. How did you make that transition, or had you already been making connections? Well, it was more of a long evolution, I think. I did work in in UK journalism. I covered quite a few conflicts. And um, over 30 years ago now, I was part of a team working at the BBC on a special program about the Gulf War, the Gulf War of 1991. And we had a very good program team and some interesting team meetings. The angles of greatest interest to me never seemed to make it onto the air. So that was the first time in my journalistic career, really, when I began to to kind of prick up my ears and and wonder whether something else was going on. Um, And then some years later, it it began to make more sense when I met Johan Gautung. Gautung is one of the founders of Peace Research. And at that time, he was talking about something called peace journalism. So he showed that the mainstream of reporting of conflicts can be seen as war journalism. That's not merely reporting war, but journalism which leaves us cognitively primed for violence. That is to see um, further violence in response to conflict as logical, inevitable, even desirable, uh, and that's a problem. So the remedial strategy could be peace journalism. So I began to think and write about that. Uh, I helped organize meetings with fellow journalists to discuss it. Uh, I devised and delivered programs of training for journalists in conflict-affected countries by way of media development aid and wrote about those. Uh, That became of interest to the academic community. Um, So I began to attend conferences and present papers, uh, write books and articles. That then led to um, an invitation to convene a summer school course at the then Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies at Sydney Uni and ultimately then led to me becoming appointed as its director. So I had a long transition from journalism to academia in pursuit of the answers to those questions that first cropped up when I was a journalist. Okay. Well, let's focus now on anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. You've written a a piece recently for Pearls and Irritations. But I want to take you back first to 2014. I remember talking to you then, and you, you ended up in the federal court facing allegations of racism and anti-Semitism. Can you explain what was happening at that time? Yeah, well, Sydney Uni has um, a scheme called the Sir Zalman Cowan Fellowship Scheme, which is a bilateral arrangement with the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. So an academic from either one of those institutions can make an application and get a funded six-month fellowship at the other end. And what you have to do when you fill out the form is you have to put down the names of, I think, two or three um, academics with whom you propose to work on your research when you get there. And this chap, uh, Professor Dan Abnon from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, wrote to me asking me, would I endorse his application? I wrote back saying, uh, no, I won't, um, not because I have 
anything against you personally, Professor Avnon, but because I uh, am a believer in the academic boycott of Israel. Um, so I'm against institutional links to Israeli higher education. Now that then uh, became, well, I think the only way to put it is that it erupted in a series of front page headlines in the Australian newspaper. And in response to that, it came to the attention of this group, Shurat Hadin. Now, Shurat Hadin is a bit of a, a sly one because it appears to be an independent organization, an NGO, in fact, a legal NGO based in Israel. But later, um, it was unmasked by WikiLeaks as working hand in glove with the Israeli security state. It really functions as a kind of arm's length attack dog for the Israeli security state. Uh, and through this guy, Andrew Hamilton, who was based here in uh, Australia, who was an affiliate of Shurat Hadin, uh, they took me to the federal court saying that my uh, policy, my enactment of the boycott, contravened Australia's Race Relations Act. And how did you defend yourself? What was your argument? Well, uh, first let it be noted that this was the trigger point, really, for a significant expansion uh, of the movement for the boycott of Israel here in Australia, because... Um, of course, uh, being a person of ordinary means, uh, in order to get legal representation, I had a kind of crowdfunding exercise in which hundreds of people um, generously chipped in to my defense fund. And I was arguing, first of all, that um, it, it was nothing to do with the fact that Dan Abnon was Jewish, for example. The slogan I used is that he could have been a Buddhist from Bendigo, as far as I was concerned. It, it was about these institutional links with Israel. Shurat had been a list of plaintiffs against me. One of them, for example, was a fan of the musician Elvis Costello. Uh, and Elvis Costello had once said he wouldn't tour Israel because to do so would be a political act. So I was accused of instrumental responsibility for this uh, by spreading the, the boycott message and therefore depriving this person of the opportunity to see Elvis Costello perform live. So it was all rather unlikely, and as the proceedings went on, at one point the judge ordered Shurat Hadin to pay a six-figure sum into court as a condition of being allowed to continue, which they did. And they hated doing that, of course, but uh, you know we got them to do that. And the case melted away when um, this list kind of pickled itself down. People dropped out when they could see there was nothing in it. I think the real lesson is that such allegations are often made, but they're not usually designed to be upheld. That is to say, when they come across the obstacles of having to provide evidence and sustain logic, which was the case with this one. Did the university support you? I think the, uh, <laughs> the university would have turned pale under its collective suntan at the prospect of being asked to support me. No, the university is entirely opportunistic in this. It's part of the corporate, the corporatizing agenda of universities. Anywhere there's money, no matter how grubby, no matter how questionable the senior management of our universities will be snapping it up because um, they've adopted a complete neoliberal approach to institutional governance, which elevates money and profit above any other consideration. Uh, so they're completely intellectually and morally bankrupt in this and many other respects, uh, which means that they would have run a mile from any suggestion of, of backing me on a matter of principle. We'll move forward to 2022, and we've got the students at Melbourne University taking a stand and being supported by many staff, university staff around the world. Is Shurat all part of that as well? Are they organising against the students 
I know there is someone outside who's taking an interest in this. Yeah, there have been murmurings and mutterings of legal action in the background. And um, I've actually written to the people at Melbourne University Student Union uh, to tell them th- these threats are intended purely to intimidate you. You know, it's, it's as my mum used to tell me, if you, if you want to stop a bully, you stand up to them. And if you, if you stand up to these bullies, um, then, uh, you know, they will, they will almost certainly back off because the threats are not really designed to be upheld. They're intended to intimidate people into silence. So I don't know that Shurat Hadin is involved. It seems unlikely to me after their, their bruising experience the last time they cropped up in Australia, in my case. But um, certainly, you know, there are, there are mutterings and mumblings of, of people taking people to court, uh, and they should be dismissed. Yes, but people must have been concerned because of the academic solidarity letter that gained many, many signatures. Yeah, I mean, I think this is uh, a difficult one for the pro-Israel lobby here, where that they are engaged in a struggle for legitimacy. Uh, now, one of the other institutions with which Sydney Uni has an institutional link is the Technion University from Haifa, and it houses the Samuel Neiman Institute, and the Samuel Neiman Institute produced a report over 10 years ago now about what it called public diplomacy, and it recommended that the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs, which was the, the sponsoring organisation, should engage in public diplomacy by forging links with a a list of of different activities, including cultural activities and educational organisations. So these links with Australian universities and and also such links as sponsoring the the Sydney Festival earlier this year, they are all seen as part of public diplomacy with the overarching aim of reducing the pressure from the international community for Israel to end its occupation and its apartheid policies towards the Palestinians. So um, now this struggle for legitimacy has taken this new turn uh, that students uh, at Melbourne University uh, and also academics from around the country are for the academic boycott of Israel. Uh, That is obviously something that the Zionist lobby here, the pro-Israel lobby, would feel it would have to try to oppose. And of course it would be happening in other countries as well, that push. Yes, Absolutely. And um, really, globally, Australia is in a minority. So, for example, we here are hoping that Labour, now it's in office, will follow through on the resolution adopted at its conference last year and recognise Palestine. And that would be important because um, uh, this uh, would, would effectively close the loophole of the previous government, which it used in order to avoid supporting the probe by the International Criminal Court into Israeli war crimes. Uh, Maurice Payne would say, oh, we we don't support the ICC jurisdiction because we don't recognize Palestine. Well, Labour should press ahead and carry through on its resolution. And in doing so, it would join the majority of the international political community. So well over 100 countries have recognized Palestine. It's a majority of those um, recognised by the United Nations. And if Australia joins them, it would be on the majority side and, I would say, on the, on the right side of history. Moving to the, the recent paper in Pearls and Irritations, why did you choose this time, or, or fellow writers choose this time to put pen to paper? Because I I'm, I'm imagine that you would have been concerned about anti-Zionism not being anti-Semitism for a very long time. Well, what's been concerning is that, um, characteristically, the pro-Israel lobby has been seeking out 
these kind of um, obscure uh, political but significant political spaces in which to operate. And getting the addition of anti-Semitism uh, has been one of their signature moves. So, for example, there was a very strange procedure at the annual conference of the New South Wales State Labour Party uh, at the back end of last year, whereby the IRA definition was adopted without debate. And a lot of people who took part in the meeting were kind of rubbing their eyes afterwards, saying, well, how did that happen? So some kind of procedural sleight of hand was used to get New South Wales Labour to sign up to this document. And really, it's become rapidly notorious for its use in stifling advocacy for Palestinian rights because it conflates uh, anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism. Uh, and therefore, that's something we have to uh, take action on at the moment. Um, we're trying to forestall the adoption of this definition more widely in Australia because we can see, otherwise we can see the horizons narrowing. It's, it's just as we're about to make a breakthrough in being able to have a platform and convince people of the need to take action in respect of Palestinian rights. Here's the pro-Israel lobby working away behind the scenes to try to close down uh, that opportunity uh, and that would be a, a threat to the to the, to the cause we're, we're working on. Just talk a little bit more about the IHRA. Where, where does it start and, and how widespread is it around the world now? Well, um, the IHRA, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, is an intergovernmental organisation headquartered in Germany. I think it's got a few dozen members it's been promulgating this definition of anti-Semitism or working definition, as it calls it. So, for example, um, it held a, an international conference uh, last year, uh, and as it was still um, shadowed by the pandemic, that took place largely online. And indeed, Australia's then Prime Minister Scott Morrison took part via Zoom uh, and committed Australia to adopting the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. Uh, and that, that was actually that was written up in the um, Australian Jewish News, of course, as a great uh, victory for the pro-Israel lobby. And one of the people it quoted was from uh, a Jewish organization. So quite clearly the aim is to try to stifle debate on university campuses, among other places. But it's, uh, the definition has attained notoriety because of its accompanying list of examples. So it gives examples what are supposed to be anti-Semitism, and the most objectionable is to say that Israel is a racist endeavor. So if you maintain that Israel is a racist endeavor, that is supposedly anti-Semitic. The fact is, Israel is a racist endeavor. You know, Israel was founded on al-Nakba, the catastrophe, the pre-planned ethnic cleansing of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, because they were people of the wrong race, and their homes and villages were earmarked for people of a different race. If that's not a racist endeavour, what is? So that's really the most objectionable example. Another one is uh, that Israel is supposedly held to different standards than other members of the international community, and that's supposed to be anti-Semitic. I mean, that's all just complete fooey. I mean, it's complete, you know, imaginary rubbish. The fact is, you know, these standards are those of international law and international humanitarian law, so they're entirely legitimate concerns for those of us in the international community because it's our societies and our governments that are supposed to be the custodians of these bodies of law. So if we're not concerned about them, it obviates the whole point of the exercise. Well, what does the Zionist lobby say about your quotes just then? Just um, 
intrinsically racism for a start. How do they answer that? Because it's blatantly obvious to anyone. Well, there's now a kind of rising tide of denialism, you know. I mean, there's a complete consensus of informed opinion that the regime Israel operates towards Palestinians uh, fits in with the definition of apartheid. And so you've had reports affirming that from all the respected organizations, um, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, Harvard University Law, the subject of complete consensus. But obviously the Zionist lobby and the pro-Israel lobby are going around denying it. Now, they should be seen in precisely the same light as lobbyists for fossil fuel companies that went round for years denying the complete consensus of informed opinion about human-induced climate change. Uh, that is to say, they should be you know, dismissed as, as just special interests trying to uh, suppress the truth. And what we should do instead is we should accept that Israel's uh, regime towards the Palestinians is one of apartheid. That's a grave crime against humanity. It's a concern for all of us. And all governments should be thinking how we can bring that situation to an end, not joining in the denialist strand of Zionist opinion, which is the latest manifestation, uh, and, you know, pandering to Israel's continuing oppression of Palestinians as a result. In a way, are they running scared because the support for Israel is waning in many instances and support for Palestine increasing? Well, as somebody said, uh, the Palestinians have the world's peoples on their side, but unfortunately Israel has the world's governments on its side. Uh, certainly, you know, in Australia, really, what was welcome, I think, um, over the past few days is that when the United States put out a statement criticizing the UN's Human Rights Committee for uh, keeping on focusing on Israel's violations, it recruited 22 other countries to join that statement as signatories, but Australia wasn't one of them. Australia put out its own statement, which was a little bit more balanced. So uh, that's, a, that's a welcome change because generally speaking uh, on this issue uh, in particular and foreign policy in general, does Australia even really have a foreign policy? It's marginal, it's borderline because really uh, it, it generally follows the line set from Washington. Well, considering what you said earlier about Sydney University, just finally, are you able to or are your fellow lecturers or students able to touch this issue of anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism, is that, are you able to do that within the parameters? Yes, I mean, my uh, kind of mission in life is to, you know, test the parameters, as it were, on this and other issues, I mean, that's why I'm a peace professor, and certainly, you know, I have not held back in sharing these ideas with my students, and as with any other issue we raise, um, I try to acquaint them with a range of perspectives, of course, while certainly making no secrets of my own. So, yes, there is still a pushback against it, uh, and, um, you know, we're kind of implicitly waiting, I suppose, for matters to be brought to a head in some way when the relative strength of support on either side of the question would be put to the test. Uh, I suppose you could say the last time that happened was indeed in the sponsorship by the Israeli embassy of the Sydney Festival uh, at the beginning of this year. And um, as you may recall, well over 100 artists who were booked to appear at the festival pulled out 
on principle uh, in response to that. And I think, to be fair, that would probably make the Israeli embassy think twice about any other attempt to sponsor mm. a, a, an interesting pointer as to the way things have now tilted on the question. Are those your final words? Well, what's interesting is that, of course, um, now in Australian politics, the two-party system is under erosion, as we saw at the federal election. And you had a set of community candidates or so-called teal candidates who picked up on community concerns and used those as the basis for insurgent challenges against incumbent members. Now, because the Liberals were in power, of course, all the issues were their issues uh, and ones that they people people felt they ought to be taking up, but they weren't because of various reasons connected with special interests. Now we may see a period when people apply the same logic to Labour. And I'm hoping that Labour press ahead uh, with their resolution to recognise Palestine. But if they don't, then it's going to leave a lot of their supporters very frustrated, uh, including in particular in the large Muslim communities and communities of Middle East heritage in Western Sydney. Uh, They will go to test the public opinion, which will be the state election in New South Wales next March. And I wouldn't rule out the possibility of a Justice for Palestine candidate cropping up in one of those Western Sydney electorates to acquaint federal Labour with the risks of inaction on this question uh, because it cannot be assumed that will lead to a quiet life. So I think that would be the sequel to recent political developments. Great. Thanks very much, Jake. Okay. And I've been speaking with Associate Professor Jake Lynch, the Chair of the Department of Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Sydney. have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home well drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au we love a good book Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long covid as a keyword. A 3CR supporter. Hi gardeners. Get ready to turn on and tune in to the Gardening Show's annual Radiothon. It all takes place on Sunday the 26th of June from 7.30 till 10am when you can help keep your favourite gardening show on air. 
As usual, we'll have great deals on seeds, organic products, gardening tools, nursery vouchers, magazine subscriptions, and of course, new and used green-focused book titles. Or simply make a tax-deductible donation to support 3CR Community Radio and The Gardening Show. Please dig deep for the 2022 3CR Gardening Radiothon, 7.30 till 10am on Sunday the 26th of June. And Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network is here to talk about seeds, the source of life on Earth. Well, it's not just plant seeds, but everything. All reproduction is to do with seed, isn't it? Whether it's human reproduction or animals, plants or microorganisms, everything depends on biological systems and biodiversity for its proper functioning in the world. And if we're going to look after the planet, we need to think about seed as the basic stuff of life, really. And now, of course, the genetic engineers want to take that and industrialize it and manipulate it and make it into something that they can control so that they can make uh, things that we've often have never existed in nature before. So we've got synthetic biology now where they reckon they can um, make living things from scratch, from the chemistry and from the DNA in test tubes in the lab. So we need to be thinking seriously about seed, whether it's um, in the rainforests of the Amazon or the Zambezi and everywhere in between. We're thinking about biological diversity, uh, which is in really catastrophic decline everywhere in the world uh, as a result of human activities, uh, land clearing, patent ownership, of course, in agriculture. Since we've spent most of the last year working on human genetic engineering, we've been doing a bit of thinking about the basics of life and uh, thinking about exactly what uh, it means uh, for the future of, uh, of the planet. Just going back to that seed patenting, over a good number of decades, I suppose, the multinationals have been taking over a lot of the seeds from the, the small producers and the small farmers all over the world. Well, that's right, yes, really. Everybody's followed the uh, decision of the U.S. Patent Office under extreme pressure in the 1980s to allow the patenting of seed. And uh, so we've got plant breeders' rights as well as the patent system transferring the ownership and control of, of seed from farmers and seed savers worldwide into the hands of corporations and that has been going on continuously and, and apace. It's good now that uh, the U.S. Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food wrote a, a recent report on seeds, which is entitled Seeds, the Right to Life and Farmers' Rights. So there is some pretty high-level thinking about just how this affects the people who have been nurturing for centuries, and indeed for millennia, plants and animals on which uh, the human food supply exists. Of course, we've lost huge amounts of biodiversity already, for instance, gone from uh, thousands of varieties of rice in Asia only a century ago to perhaps um, half a dozen now, and many of those going into the porridge pot rather than being saved and nurtured by those who have 
done that work in the public interest without recompense, whereas now we've got people in laboratories wanting to claim ownership and control and profits out of the seed supply. And I think we need a rethinking about farmers' rights. What is really a human right to save and uh, replant seed from year to year? In all this, the patenting came about really as a result of the emergence of genetic manipulation technologies. The claim that companies, by manipulating the genes of seed, therefore acquired property rights over it under extreme pressure. Initially, the American Patent Office reversed its original decision not to allow seed patent and uh, did allow that to happen. It's interesting that uh, the American government has very aggressively over the last three or four decades spread that patent system globally. I remember um, Ronald Reagan coming into um, into Sydney for a meeting and mentioning that uh, one of the items on the agenda was uh, patents. You know, they have been, as a, as a matter of foreign policy, spreading that, that right to own and control life and to manipulate it using genetic engineering techniques and technologies to own and control what those companies were saying were innovations. And, of course, Monsanto was the big leader in that. But now, of course, Monsanto has disappeared. And the biggest dog on the block is Bayer, which has got fingers in pharmaceuticals, plants, chemicals of all kinds, particularly agricultural chemicals and production systems right around the world. So uh, it's being very influential now in the creation of policy uh, in Australia and overseas. And, of course, the penalties to small farmers, whether they be peasants or Indigenous peoples or really anyone who says, well, those seeds are mine, I'm going to continue to plant them, they can be taken to court? They could be, but there have been other ways, of course, that uh, the patent owners have um, managed to exert their control and influence. And the hybridisation of seed where uh, you make seed that is um, able to produce, be more high yielding for a year or two, but ultimately fails to um, deliver the production that farmers need out of their fields to bring farmers back to buy seed year after year. That was an innovation that's been around now for several decades. And then the patents, of course, into the contract of sale for a patented seed uh, using genetic engineering, the companies always put into the contract that you may not save seed. So if you're a conventional farmer and you're growing a genetically manipulated crop, whether it's canola or cotton in, in Australia, for instance, then in your buying the seed, you actually undertake not to save it for reuse in subsequent years. In those contracts as well, the companies retain the right to enter your farm, to look in your seed bins and to generally enforce the, the monopoly terms of their contract. And that, of course, was extensively used to browbeat farmers and uh, seed cleaners and a variety of others in agriculture in the USA until everybody realised, well, we have to go along with uh, what the companies demand. That's where it's been most ruthlessly enforced. But... Uh, very few countries have stood out against 
that um, I think the most notable exception really is India, which hasn't recognised those uh, foreign patents on life. There have been activists there like Vandana Shiva in particular who have argued very, very strenuously and effectively for the right of farmers to save and reuse their seed for replanting. Are the old seeds far superior to the patented ones? Well, the thing uh, is that, um, say, genetically manipulated seed, generally speaking, was not producing um, any better than the conventional varieties. But what the uh, companies very cannily did was to introduce that hybridisation system into, along with the production of genetically manipulated seeds to give them a production edge and to have a second tier to the enforcement of no seed saving. So you'd come back next year to pay another royalty and a technology fee on the seed that you would buy for subsequent planting. Of course, the contract, as I mentioned, would say that you were not allowed to save any seed for replanting or, in fact, for any use. So it would exclude things like innovation, any experimentation. And, of course, it's farmers who have done the main innovations and creation of value in agricultural systems over many, many centuries. And now, of course, that role has fallen into the hands of these monopoly companies who uh, design seed really to serve their own interests. So, for instance, um, herbicide-tolerant crop plants are designed so that as well as selling you the seed, the company can sell you the herbicide that you can spray liberally uh, from the air or over your crop plants without harming the crop plant but getting a very, very good weed kill in your fields. The system really is designed and managed to disadvantage farmers. We've got, of course, the organic agricultural systems that don't use genetically engineered seed and are outside that system. And regenerative agriculture, I think, is the way of the future too, where it looks much more to soil and soil productivity and health as a way of ensuring that uh, future generations of people can be fed as well as they have in the past. So there are innovations going on there that uh, are outside that monopolised system as well. And of course, in countries like India, in many African countries and in other parts of the world, uh, the Middle East, for instance, farmers are still saving seed, are um, running their own experiments, their own trials to for yield, for adaptation to things like climate change and other stresses, drought tolerance, salt tolerance, and so on. And in fact, those innovations are making better headway than the people in the labs trying to tinker with with the genes. It's a complex picture, but um, I think the fact that the United Nations Special Rapporteur is asserting the right to save and manage our own seed uh, that hasn't been especially uh, genetically manipulated is a very good thing and uh, hopefully that expression of the human right to sustenance and to uh, to be agriculturally productive, even if it is just a home garden, uh, will be maintained. And also the fact, Bob, that so many countries and 
systems have been able to resist falling into the lap of these patenters? Well, up to a point. Of course, others have gone willingly along with it. I, I think the, um, the Australian canola industry is interesting. Some percentage, maybe 20% of Australian canola is now genetically manipulated. But the strongest demand for canola seed from Australia is because most of it remains non-genetically manipulated. So in Europe, for instance, we see that uh, we can sell non-GM canola, but not for human or animal (laughs) consumption, but for biofuel production into Europe. So a lot of the food supply actually goes into industrial materials, into things like biofuels. The reason that we have an advantage in that market and uh, can trade, because trade is the basis now of the uh, global uh, seed supply as well, uh, another complication, they can use the Australian canola for biofuel production and then it can go directly into animal feed whereas if it were genetically manipulated, it wouldn't be available uh, for animal feed. They'd have a byproduct of gene technology which they would have to dispose of in some other way or export to another market. So we've had, for the last 20 years, an edge in Europe as demand for our GM-free products or non-GM products into Europe, uh, whereas the Canadians, who uh, dominated that market earlier, have not had access to it and must sell their canola into other parts of the world. So trade also complicates all of this because the global food supply, the global seed supply is now dominated by trade issues and by a few very influential corporations which are pursuing their own uh, corporate agendas, not the public interest. How much have they managed to get into the farming areas in Australia? Well, at the moment, just canola and cotton, about 100%, almost 100% of Australian cotton is genetically engineered. Uh, It either contains uh, insect toxin genes or um, herbicide tolerance to either the Roundup glyphosate or um, glufosinate, which is the Bayer product. And now that Bayer is on the scene, that's becoming a much more marketed and uh, upfront herbicide option as well. So we see cotton very much in that way. As far as canola, which is the other main genetically manipulated crop in Australia, as I mentioned, about probably 20%. It varies, but about 20% of the national crop is probably GM. But uh, the vast majority of farmers continue with non-GM varieties and are able to sell into that European market. The thing about that too is that uh, there are substantial premiums for the non-GM varieties. The prices have varied varied recently, but at one point, discount for the GM crops was $110 a ton, which was um, about 10% of the value. And that really would have been a great incentive to continue growing conventional varieties rather than the genetically manipulated ones. But the complication is that some farmers have extreme problems with herbicide-tolerant weeds. They find them difficult to manage, and they think that by getting the GM varieties in, 
being able to spray their fields liberally with herbicides without damaging the crop plants, they see as a management advantage, even though their product is then being discounted. There are decisions to be made. A few farmers embrace the new technologies, but the majority continue to manage with conventional varieties. What about the push to get gene-edited seeds into the vegetable markets and the vegetable growing areas? Yes, well, this is a a whole new story, really. Um, Genome editing was invented in uh, 2012. People may know it as CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R, Cas9, in which any living organism, whether it's a human being, an animal, a plant, or a microorganism, can be genetically engineered. Since the first discovery of the these uh, particular gene manipulation methods in 2012, a whole lot of new uh, methods have come online as well. And unfortunately, in 2019, the government decided that a particular group, uh, particularly called site-directed nucleases number one, as opposed to two or three, would be deregulated. And this has opened a big breach in our regulatory system in Australia. And there's a huge push going on in Europe to deregulate uh, SDN1 as well. These new gene editing methods, many of them now will not be regulated. No assessment or licensing of organisms which are created using these particular GM techniques will be required. What we now see is that seed developed in these ways may start to enter agricultural systems and, of course, their product will also enter uh, the human food supply with unknown consequences. And what we see is that Food Standards Australia New Zealand, as a result of the deregulation that went on in 2019, is also now considering whether or not those particular crop plants Uh, should be deregulated in the food supply as well. Their proposal at the moment is that uh, the people who develop such crop plants, it will be left up to them essentially to decide whether or not uh, their new innovations pose any hazards to public health or safety. And I think that's pretty unsatisfactory. Now that the Office of Gene Technology Regulations have been watered down and Food Standards Australia New Zealand is thinking of also deregulating those products in the human food supply. We see that there's a lot of enthusiasm among corporations and some uh, research groups in Australia to use those particular deregulated um, processes in order to develop new crop plants, to develop animals and microorganisms for use in agriculture. Uh, The most um, recent news about this is that... uh, Corteva AgriScience, which was previously the two companies, Dow and DuPont, who got together and called themselves Corteva, uh, signed an agreement with a, um, a very large vegetable seed company based in the Netherlands. It sounds pretty remote, but the company, BEJO. So the Australian operation of this uh, Dutch company is in Sky in Victoria and is growing a variety of vegetable seeds in Tasmania and Victoria. And uh, an indication, I think, is what the um, 
the sorts of things they're doing. Brassicas, for instance, which covers uh, canola, of course, which is broadacre, but also uh, cabbages, the uh, broccoli and so on. Onions, carrots and a variety of other vegetables and fruits are now going to be um, worked on by this uh, company. Uh, so what will actually come into our food supply, what will come onto uh, farms for production is hard to say in the future because of the uh, lack of transparency around the regulation. A research group at Murdoch University in WA also said some time ago that they would prioritise the use of the techniques that had been deregulated so that their uh, products wouldn't be overseen. Another West Australian company, Intergrain, which uh, does grains research, that used to be owned by the uh, West Australian government that was corporatised a couple of decades ago, they too are working in this space there's quite a lot going on uh, that is going to bring uh, gene-edited crop plants into the Australian uh, environment and into our food supply as well. So we're working very hard to try and find mechanisms that will ensure that uh, things are disclosed. To their credit, the Tasmanian government, because it wants to remain uh, GM-free on marketing grounds, has decided that it will regulate the entry of any gene-edited seed into that state. But unfortunately, the rest of Australia is not doing that at this stage. Likewise, we know that uh, cooperative bulk handlers, which is the main grain trader owned by farmers in Western Australia, will be requiring farmers to disclose if they use gene-edited seed in the future. They will have to tell the um, grain trader, the bulk handler, uh, that they've been doing that and presumably it will be segregated. We don't know what the future holds in that regard. We've got intrusions into broadacre agriculture. Those broadacre uh, crops like the uh, canola, the cotton, soybean and so on uh, and then also into vegetables and fruits. The new techniques, the industry's trying to get the community to believe that these are not really genetic manipulation in the way that uh, we knew about it from the 1990s onwards. But really, it's not a very different game. These new techniques have all sorts of knock-on effects in the genomes of the organisms that they create with unknown consequences. There are environmental and public health issues. We're working very hard to make sure that they continue to be regulated and that... Uh, Gene, genome editing, so-called, uh, doesn't become a Trojan horse for other uh, intrusions into our food supply especially. Well, just finishing off, Bob, we've been neglecting Monsanto, now Bayer, for a while, but there's been a, a significant or a major victory yes, in the right. US. Um, well, it's just another step along the way, I think, rather than a final victory, unfortunately. In the last three years, people suffering non-Hodgkin's lymphoma got substantial payouts from Bayer, which now owns Monsanto, as a result of people being exposed to glyphosate-based herbicides, and they were very, very substantial awards, up to $80 million. Three juries agreed that the, the health of these people had been affected. They'd got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, 
as a result of their exposure to glyphosate. And indeed, the company was being forced to settle with over 110,000 other people suffering the same disease who had also been exposed. But unfortunately, in the last um, 12 months, there have been four further cases. The juries in those cases have all found in favour of the company. Things have changed. The original uh, lawyers who were running the cases were very, very well briefed. The company's side was forced to concede that, yes, they had known there were certain dangers, and yes, there was evidence of harm, uh, and they were supported by the US Environment Protection Authority, which had said that um, glyphosate didn't pose any unreasonable risks to humans or the environment. What's happened now is that an appeals court, uh, because the company went to the appeals court to say all of these cases should be overturned, Bayer shouldn't have to pay anything, uh, the courts come back saying, yeah, in fact, the US Environment Protection Agency didn't evaluate all of the available evidence. It made a biased uh, ruling in supporting the company's position. Go back and do your research again and come back to us. We're not going to allow the company to challenge the uh, earlier rulings until the EPA has uh, revised its no cancer risk conclusion because it doesn't stand up to scrutiny on the basis of the existing evidence. The importance of this, of course, for Australia is that the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority here has very much taken the same line saying glyphosate is safe to use provided you uh, abide by the label instructions. No worries here. There are a couple of cases, of course, which haven't come to court yet about people who have contracted non-Hodgkin's lymphoma as a result of using glyphosate, but there are no conclusive results in Australia. Just the regulator saying, we're not going to reconsider the evidence. We're satisfied that glyphosate is safe. But at least regulators are being called to task by the courts. That is a step forward, I think. We're still hopeful that in the end run, Bayer will have to pay up the um, 10 to $20 billion that it's already committed to uh, paying out the hundreds of thousands of people who have been adversely affected uh, with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma as a result of being exposed to glyphosate-based herbicides. And uh, I think it's just a warning, of course, to those who use those herbicides here in Australia to be damn careful when using them or to decide not to use them at all. That would be the prudent uh, course of action. Okay, to say that the two organisations you've been talking about could be Paper tigers? No, if you're talking about the US Environment Protection Authority and the uh, Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority, yes. of course, it's been clear for a long time that they really are in the pockets of the companies. And it's no mystery why. For instance, here in Australia, the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority is funded by the industry that it regulates. Uh, on the basis of the volume of sales of each chemical uh, or veterinary medicine, and there are 11,000 of them registered with our pesticides authority, each year the companies have to pay to be regulated. And, of course, as we all know, those who pay 
the piper call the tune, and that's what happens. In the USA, here, the regulators are a captive of the corporate interests that profit from the continued sale of uh, agricultural chemicals. And in Australia, we're talking about farmers and home gardeners, etc., spending something like $5 billion a year on those chemicals. And then the company pays a very small amount out of the profits that they make from, from that very considerable sale to have themselves regulated by a tame cat regulator. It's um, really a scandal, and it's a long-running one because we'll just briefly recall that the Gillard government established a re-registration and reassessment system for all agricultural chemicals towards the end of their term in government. When the Liberals got elected, immediately Barnaby Joyce, on the basis of a promise made to the agrochemical industry in the uh, in the election campaign of uh, 2014, reversed the decision to have this precautionary system in place to require the re uh, registration and reassessment of all agriculture and veterinary chemicals in Australia. It was simply dumped. It was supposed to come in on the 1st of July 2014. And the challenge now is to say to the new Labor government, well, you did the right thing when Gillard was in power and you should do the right thing again. Europe, the USA and many other jurisdictions have a re-registration system where the companies have to bring forward their chemical with new evidence of its environmental and public health safety and get them re-registered every 5, 10 or 15 years, depending on where you are. And in Australia, they don't have to get them re-registered or reassessed at all. And yet a lot of the evidence which claims to show that these chemicals are safe was actually generated up to 50 years ago, ever been reviewed. And it's about time that it was. That will be another campaign that I think Genethics and National Toxics Network and others will be wanting to run during the life of this parliament and, and this new government to say, you did the right thing last time. Let's do it again. Let's set up a system that really is precautionary when it comes to chemicals that are being sprayed on our food and come into the food supply as chemical residues and are clearly having impacts on public health and safety, not only the people who use the chemicals, but the conventional foods on which these chemicals are sprayed and produce the residues that are causing harm to public health. Do follow up the issues that Bob talks about on the webpage Gene Ethics Network or on their Facebook page. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.